This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Africa and Global Health uh, will come to order. Uh, today, the subcommittee will hear testimony regarding U.S. sanctions policy in Africa. Sanctions can either lead to successful outcomes or exacerbate the very issues they seek to remedy and reflect poorly on those seeking to advance them. As with most things, the, the devil is in the details. In my experience, uh, unilateral economic sanctions by themselves rarely, if ever, achieve their intended goal, and I have been long suspect of uh, unilateral economic sanctions. I've witnessed firsthand how uh, non-targeted economic sanctions can apply pressure to those who have no direct link to the levers of power in a country. Now, looking beyond the issue of multi versus unilateral economic sanctions, there are other factors in play in determining whether or not targeted individual sanctions on a country are warranted and are likely to be an effective tool. Uh, right now, the United States has targeted individual sanctions uh, in place for nine sub-Saharan countries, uh, Burundi, Central African Republic, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, Eritrea, Somalia, Sudan, South Sudan, and Zimbabwe. I should say that uh, these are targeted individual sanctions uh, on individuals in those countries. We also have arms export restrictions in place against most of these countries, and enforcement of both these and financial sanctions uh, can obviously be a challenge for these African countries. Uh, today, we aim to step back and explore the effectiveness of some of these efforts. We'll examine the recent track record of sanctions in Africa, uh, when they've proven to be a useful tool in achieving our policy objectives, and under what circumstances they are falling flat or causing uh, unintended consequences. We'll look at the relationship between sanctions undertaken solely by the United States versus those taken those in concert uh, with the international community. Finally, I hope we'll get a better understanding from today's discussion of whether we are overusing or underusing sanctions or the threat of sanctions in Africa. We often hear elected officials advocate for the use of sanctions as a foreign policy tool I'm rarely among those pushing for sanctions, uh, but as those calls arise, uh, we will all benefit <coughs> uh, from hearing from our witnesses uh, to hear what they have to say about sanctions in Africa. This hearing is especially timely considering the calls for sanctions on the DRC that uh, have been forthcoming uh, from Congress uh, and elsewhere in previous weeks. I look forward to hearing the witnesses today. I've met with uh, a number of you already and uh, look forward to hearing your verbal testimony. And with that, uh, turn it over to Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh, and thank you for having such an important uh, hearing. Last year, you and I and Senator Coons had the tremendous pleasure of accompanying President Obama on his historic trip to Kenya and Ethiopia. On that trip, we attended a large public event at the African Union in Addis Ababa. Throughout the front of that massive auditorium sat many of Africa's heads of state. And the president delivered a speech about the responsibility those leaders have to build and respect democracy in Africa. He reinforced the message he had delivered on his first trip to the continent as president years earlier that, and I quote, Africa doesn't need strong men, it needs strong institutions. As the president spoke, he looked at those leaders and told them that as much as he would like to continue in office as president of the United States, 
the Constitution of the United States, like many constitutions in Africa and around the world, limits him to two terms. He told him that not even he, as president, is above the law. He explained that even the president must respect the rules of the game because governance is fundamentally about trust. Promises made and promises kept between elected leaders and the people who elected them. Changing or ignoring those rules risks breaking that trust and sending a society towards turmoil and instability. Many of the leaders in the front rows sat stone-faced and silent, not accustomed to such straight talk. If they had been the only ones in the room, the silence would have been stunning. But they weren't the only ones in the room. You, Mr. Chairman, Senator Coons, and I, we saw it packed in all the way to the ceiling were ordinary people from around the African continent. After they heard President Obama's words, they cheered so loudly that it shook the building. The people of Africa are the heirs of hundreds of years of exploitation and violence first by colonial powers, and all too often by their own leaders since Africa was decolonized. They are people who have been fighting hard against repression and corruption and are now working to build democracies throughout the continent. They're counting the promises made about freedom and prosperity. Two weeks ago, I introduced a resolution calling for targeted sanctions in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where President Joseph Kabila has been using every tactic at his disposal to manipulate institutions, suppress political opposition, and delay elections to try to remain in power beyond the end of his mandate, a mandate set by DRC's people in their own constitution. For many months, President Obama, Secretary Kerry, Assistant Secretary Thomas Greenfield, Special Envoy Tom Periello, and Ambassador James Swan have engaged in a determined diplomatic effort to persuade President Kabila to commit to stepping aside at the end of this term, as specifically required in the Congo Constitution. But now, with just five months left until elections are supposed to happen, it has become clear that our diplomats need additional tools to communicate how seriously the United States views the actions of President Kabila and his government, and to demonstrate our commitment to the Congolese people. Some may ask, why is this important? Well. You only have to look next door into the wider region to see why it is so important. Next door in Burundi, President Nkurunziza's unconstitutional election to a third term last year sparked violence that has cost the lives of hundreds, displaced thousands, and threatens to reignite ethnic tensions. And it doesn't stop there. This weekend, I read a report about Kenya's uh, a new uh, mood, describing massive protests that have already erupted in anticipation of elections there next year, amid concerns that President Kenyatta has manipulated the Electoral Commission in his favor. Kenyan security forces have once again cracked down on protesters and attempted to ban protests, and in direct violation of multiple court rulings and its country's constitution, multiple protesters have already been killed stoking a very legitimate fear that 2017 could see a repeat of the horrific violence surrounding the elections of 2007. So sanctions in DRC are known only about DRC. President Kenyatta will be watching our approach to DRC to see just how much he can get away with for the sake of the people of Burundi 
DRC, Kenya, and others in the region. I think we have to make absolutely clear that the United States stands with the people and democracy and will not tolerate leaders who use force or manipulation to hold on to power or break their most fundamental promises to their own people. Those sanctions, I believe, should be targeted at those officials in the government of DRC who are responsible for violence and human rights violations and undermining the democratic processes or institutions. I believe such targeted sanctions, sanctions specifically designed to avoid negatively impacting ordinary Congolese, would make a significant impact on Kabila's calculations going forward as he comes to realize that his actions will have consequences. Beyond influencing Kabila's decisions, though, sanctions are about making a statement about America's commitment to the Congolese people. Sanctions are about making clear to the Congolese people that we will not help entrench strong men, but will always lend a helping hand to people working to build strong institutions and prosperous societies. Sanctions in cases like these are an important way in which the U.S. communicates to the people in the balcony, Congolese, Burundians, Sudanese, Kenyans, and others, that promises made must be kept, that we will not help strong men break promises to their people. I want to thank each and every one of our distinguished guests for being here today, and I really want to thank you, Mr. Chairman, for having this very important hearing. Well, thank you, Senator Markey. Senator Coons, do you have anything to say before we start? I'll simply um, say my thanks uh, to you and to the ranking member as someone who also um, attended that same event. It was a memorable event, uh, and I very much look forward to hearing from the members of the panel and to engaging uh, in a debate. Um, there is relatively little time left for Congress to act uh, in a way that would send a clear and strong signal about our uh, intentions and our concerns about the DRC and future elections in other countries. And it's my hope that working together we will find a way following this hearing uh, to do that in a concerted, constructive way. Thank you. Well, thank you, Senator Coons. I couldn't be more pleased, I think all of us couldn't be more pleased with the panel that we put together for today's hearing. Um, we, uh, we wanted to get a range of opinion, and uh, we certainly have that, and have, uh, if you read through the testimony and we listen to what you'll say, people realize uh, what breadth of experience uh, we have here today. Um, we'll try to keep it, uh, we have, Votes coming up at some point this afternoon. We have a nominations hearing right following this, so we'll have to keep pretty close on time. So we'll ask you to please uh, limit your remarks to five minutes, and then we'll have uh, plenty of time for questions. Now, I'll introduce all, all four of you here and then quickly go. Ambassador uh, Princeton Lyman, uh, senior advisor, former senior advisor to the president of the U.S. Institute for Peace. He's previously served in numerous uh, U.S. Uh, or official U.S. capacities including Special Envoy for Sudan and South Sudan, and as amb Ambassador to Nigeria and South Africa. The Honorable Sue Eckert, uh, Senior Fellow at Brown University's Watson Center for International and Public Affairs, where she directs the projects on targeted sanctions and terrorist financing. She also previously served as Assistant Secretary of Commerce of e for Export Administration. Dr. Todd Moss is a Chief Operating Officer and Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Development. He previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for, of State for African Affairs from 2007 to 2008 and is an expert on U.S.-Africa relations, finance, and development policy. Mr. Brad Brooks uh, Rubin is the Director of Policy at the Enough Project. He was previously the Special Advisor for Conflict Diamonds at the Department of State and Attorney Advisor in the Treasury Department's Office of Chief Counsel uh, Foreign Assets Control. 
where he advised on sanctions related to Sudan, Liberia, DRC, and counterterrorism. Uh, thank you for being here. Look forward to the testimony. Ambassador Lyman. Thank you very much, uh, to Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member, Senator Markey, Senator Coons. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And uh, I will be expressing views of my own, not those necessarily of the U.S. Institute of Peace. Um, let me concentrate on three points relative to the issues that you have raised. First of all, sanctions are a tool. They're not a policy. And they don't work very well if they're not part not only of a policy and policy objectives, but of, for a broader strategy to achieve them. We have cases where sanctions have been very important in Liberia and Sierra Leone and Cote d'Ivoire, but we have to remember that that was associated or complemented by the activities of peacekeepers, a, a broad regional strategy, and other steps to bring about an end to the situations on which those were targeted. In the DRC, we have a very, very important situation, a very delicate one and a very dangerous one. And I think the issue of extending terms is not a question of whether countries are entitled to have more than one term, but when terms are extended in ways that are repressive and threaten the stability and the peace of the country, they become an issue of peace and security. What I'm afraid of in the case of the DRC is that we don't have yet the unified international position to, to pressure and get this objective achieved. We have agreement with the European Union on the objective, but not necessarily the strategy. And the African Union is at, at best uh, divided on this question. They stumbled over this same problem in Burundi, uh, and they haven't come down strongly on the question of the uh, President Kabila stepping aside when his term is over in the DRC. Uh, and that is unfortunate because you need a combination of pressures, but you need also the weight of African opinion, of senior leaders, and of neighboring countries. And I think it's important to put that strategy together and make it more effective in the months ahead. In the meanwhile, I would say that the threat of sanctions is very important, but I'm not sure, and I defer to people following this more closely, that exercising them unilaterally without agreement with our partners may not be the most effective way to go forward. The second point that I would make is, and Senator Flake alluded to this, is that unilateral sanctions are less effective if they're strictly unilateral. If you don't have worldwide support or broad international support, it's very easy to, be, to evade them or to have other countries undercut them. But when you have worldwide support, when you've put together a coalition around them, then not only do you have more enforcement, but you can draw on the relative skills of different entities. We're very good at financial and economic sanctions. We have a lot of talent and a lot of skill in those. The EU has a lot of leverage with their very complex aid and trade relationships with Africa, and, they, and suspension of those benefits is a very powerful instrument. The Africa Union brings important political weight to bear, and of course they are major participants in any peacekeeping operation. So when you have that kind of broad international structure around the use of sanctions, they are far more effective. The third point I would make, and it's perhaps the most controversial, is that sanctions 
have to, uh, sanctions are good uh, if they are aimed at achievable, very specific objectives. But it's harder to use sanctions to get real deep political transformation in countries and a change in the way countries operate. Because all rulers who are ruling autocratically see that as political suicide and they will resist the pressures, they will go around the sanctions, they will let their countries pay a tough price. Targeted sanctions, moreover, go at individuals. They don't go at regimes in general. So the question is, how do you deal with countries like Sudan, like uh, Zimbabwe and others in which fundamental transformation is necessary to get both a better, uh, uh, to end the conflicts, but also to end the human rights violations. And I think it has to be co a combination of a long-term strategy of engagement, perhaps sanctions layered, but linked to individual steps, and building the strong democratic capacities within the country. Because without those, even a change in regime doesn't necessarily produce the peace and democracy you want. Let me just finish with an incident I experienced when I was ambassador to South Africa. Nelson Mandela was president. And at that time, Nigeria was ruled by Sani Abacha, a very uh, cruel and rapacious leader. So a group of Nigerian activists came to see Nelson Mandela and they said, we need your help. We want your support for international oil sanctions on Nigeria. You know how sanctions helped you in South Africa, and we need them now. And President Mandela's response caught him off guard. He said, yes, sanctions were helpful, but sanctions aren't enough if you don't have a strong indigenous democratic movement in your country. Otherwise, you won't get the outcome you want. I think that's an important lesson for us as we look at how we get these longer-term changes that we need in some of these countries. Thank you, and I'm happy to answer any questions subsequently. Thank you, Ms. Eckhart. Chairman Flake, Senator Markey, and Senator Coons, thank you very much for the opportunity to appear before you today to discuss the effectiveness of targeted sanctions in Africa. Um, due to time constraints and the rich expertise of my fellow witnesses, I'm going to limit my remarks to focusing on UN sanctions and the role UN sanctions play. Um, this is largely based on a, a new database, um, both a quantitative and qualitative database, looking at the impact and effectiveness of UN sanctions since they were first imposed uh, in 1990. Under Chapter 7 um, of the UN Charter, the Security Council imposes sanctions to maintain or restore international peace and security. And in general, there are six categories of threats that they are most often used for. This is um, armed conflict in terms of uh, including support for peace negotiations and peace enforcement, terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, proliferation, unconstitutional changes of government, governance of resources, natural resources, and protection of civilians under R2P. The purpose of these sanctions, contrary to popular perception, is not just to coerce a change of behavior, but also to constrain access to, to prescribed activities or finance, and also to signal support for an international norm or stigmatize the targets. Um, these purposes are not mutually exclusive and most often are done simultaneously all UN sanctions entail stigmatizing in some manner. Um, you've already laid out the sanctions. Um, there are currently UN sanctions, 13 
of which eight are country-based regimes in Africa. That's Somalia, Eritrea, the DRC, Sudan, Libya, Guinea-Bissau, Central African Republic, Yemen, and South Sudan. While more than 60% of UN sanctions, eight out of 13, um, focus on armed conflict and peace building, sanctions focused on the threat of terrorism, for example, Al-Qaeda, ISIL, the Taliban, and the threat of proliferation, North Korea and previously Iran, receive a disproportionate share of the Security Council's attention and resources. Just to highlight some research points, um, UN sanctions are the majority of um, the, the Africa sanctions, but, me, but most often, particularly in the early days, they were imposed in a less than coherent um, way. And the sanctions, as the ambassador said, substituted for policy. The use of sanctions uh, to demonstrate resolve without integrating them into an overall strategy is largely ineffective. And for this reason, it's very important that sanctions objectives be clearly articulated at the outset. The, the second thing I'd just like to say is that from the research, secondary sanctions we found um, have proven, and this was uh, in cases of Africa, the, um, against Liberia in support for the RUF in, in Sierra Leone and against Eritrea for its arms exports to, to Somalia have been highly effective. Yet it's not something that's very frequently discussed nor used. Characteristics of effective sanctions, again, as the ambassador pointed out, relationship to other policy instruments. Sanctions do not exist in isolation and are always used with other instruments, most often diplomacy, at times peacekeeping forces on the ground, 62% of the cases. Um, sanctions need and must be part of a broader strat coordinated strategy. With regard to objectives and types of sanctions, um, UN-targeted sanctions are effective more than 20% of the time, and, but are, are nearly three times more effective in constraining and coercing than, than uh, constraining, excuse me, or signaling than they are in coercing. This is very important because it gets to the point of what the objective of the sanctions are and having realistic expectations of these measures to be able to be effective. Arms embargoes are the most frequently imposed sanction, especially in African conflicts, in 89% of the episodes, but are least effective when applied in isolation. Um, travel bans are the next most utilized, 69% of cases. Asset freezes, 66. Travel bans uh, and combined, 73. One interesting fact is that in 40% of the cases of armed conflict, Commodity sanctions, those are sanctions on diamonds, such as in Liberia, Sierra Leone, uh, Angola, Cote d'Ivoire, oil, charcoal in Somalia, or timber in Liberia, when appropriately, have been highly effective for purposes of constraint and signaling. Um, I'm going to, to um, talk one um, moment just about the unintended consequence of sanctions, because I think that this impor is important. We found in the data and the research that we've done that corruption, criminality, strengthening of authoritative rule, and decline of legitimacy of the Security Council have occurred. But there are additional consequences which until recently have not been focused on, and this is as a result of policies and sanctions intended to counter the financing of terrorism and um, anti-money laundering. And this is the de-risking, the de-risking issue that some of you have, have written to the executive branch about. The inability of remitters or money um, service businesses and charities to access financial services. And these problems have been particularly acute in African countries such as Somalia, Sudan, and Angola, where humanitarian assistance is, great, uh, is in greatest need. Um, 
with regard to challenges to effective sanctions, very quickly, um, right now there's uh, you know, insufficient political will within the Security Council, especially regarding China and Russia. Two, weak implementation and capacity. And this is the most important uh, issue, I would say, that we need to focus on. And that is countries lack basic legal authority and executive bodies to translate UN sanctions into domestic law. And in very many um, cases, the failure to implement sanctions boils down to a lack of capacity. Ineffective uh, and inadequate monitoring and enforcement mechanisms that we need to enhance in the context of the UN. Um, and misperceptions and lack of understanding about what sanctions are intended to do. With regard to recommendations, very quickly, one is to improve um, member states and regional capacity. This is using those people on the ground, the AU, ECOWAS, SADC, et cetera, um, to focus on sanctions. And this also gets to greater leadership and focus for conflict-related sanctions vis-a-vis -vis nonproliferation and terrorism goals. It's just not there at this point, both in terms of the U.S. government and even within the context of the U.N. The second is to enhance sanctions monitoring and enforcement. Um, that they, if there are violations, noncompliance, there has to be some kind of response or else sanctions will lack credibility. The third is to strengthen cooperation with regional groups and civil society. The fourth is to develop better analysis and understanding of sanctions um, and to focus on new tools, new ways that we can exercise the tool to be more effective. Um, finally, the UN sanctions have made an important contribution to achieving US policy objectives in Africa, but to a, a limited degree and with some important unintended consequences. It's a, it's a mixed record of effectiveness, but frankly, there are so few tools between words and war that they'll continue to be used. Um, and we do have to be aware, I think as Secretary Liu has pointed out most recently, of the tendency to use them automatically or without thought as part of a broader strategy, which can lead to overuse. Mr. Chairman, thank you for the opportunity to testify on the effectiveness of African sanctions. Thank you, Dr. Moss. Thank you, Chairman Flake, uh, Ranking Member Markey. Uh, I have three points today about the utility of targeted bilateral U.S. sanctions, and I'll conclude by highlighting how each applies to the troubled case of Zimbabwe. Uh, my first point is that U.S. bilateral sanctions are a visible and potent signal from the world's most powerful nation. If you steal elections, you don't get to send your kids to school in Boston. If you rob public coffers, you don't get to invest in California real estate. If you mistreat your own people, you don't get to seek medical care in Houston hospitals. Sanctions against the most oppressive, violent, and kleptocratic regimes could even be used more frequently. For example, I believe it's past time for the U.S. to take a hard look at sanctions against political leaders in the Gambia. Uh, second point is that well-crafted and aggressively executed targeted sanctions can have a significant impact on influencing the decisions and policies of regimes and bad actors. Both financial sanctions implemented by the Treasury Department and travel sanctions imposed by the State Department can have traceable effects when policymakers have very clear and concrete objectives in mind, and especially when the intelligence community is given the time and means to find financial levers and vulnerabilities. Third, regime change is the wrong metric for success. No one claims, nor should anyone expect, 
that targeted bilateral sanctions on their own will bring down a regime. Sanctions complement rather than replace our other diplomatic, economic, and military tools. So how do each of these points apply toward US policy in Zimbabwe? Uh, the current legislation known as Zadera uh, includes a call for travel and economic sanctions against individuals, specific individuals who are believed to be responsible for violence and the breakdown of the rule of law in that country. Point one, U.S. sanctions have been a very powerful and visible bipartisan signal of U.S. policy of standing firm on democracy. Zadera was co-sponsored by senators from across the political spectrum, Bill Frist, Jesse Helms, Russ Feingold, Joe Biden, and Hillary Clinton. The executive branch sanctions advocated by Zadera were not directed at the, at the country as a whole, but aimed at specific individuals. Unfortunately, as of 2016, none of the key Zadera conditions have been met either in letter or in spirit. Those are restoring the rule of law, holding free and fair elections, and depoliticizing the security forces. Point two, the lack of Zimbabwe's progress to date is not an indicator that sanctions per se have failed. Zimbabwe's decline continues primarily because of an entrenched, highly abusive regime combined with very unhelpful regional dynamics. The European Union's weak and deeply misguided move last year to lift most sanctions on Zimbabwe is not a path the United States should follow. Um, before we change course, we must ask whether the removal of U.S. sanctions will advance U.S. policy goals or will the, the removal play into the hands of the regime. In my view, lifting sanctions at this time will merely strengthen Robert Mugabe and the cabal around him by providing a major propaganda victory. The regime will claim that it has vanquished its imperialist oppressors and it now has formal American endorsement. Point three, sanctions against Zimbabwe would be much more effective if they were embedded in a broader strategy that included other tools of US power and influence. The United States has generally disengaged from Zimbabwe in recent years, leaving our policy little more than sanctions plus humanitarian assistance. Rather than throwing up our hands or acquiescing in the face of, of difficulties, we must engage with allies to support democratic forces in the country rather than abandon them. The sanctions list itself could be used more creatively to encourage positive behavior and increase U.S. influence in a post-Mugabe transition. In fact, the U.S. government should be preparing specific targets and options for further ratcheting up pressure, which could be deployed as necessary. This absolutely must include the United States continuing to collect information on certain politicians who one day should face charges of embezzlement and war crimes. Finally, one additional related point. Zimbabwe is today taking steps to try to borrow again from the international financial institutions. As the recent letter from Chairman Corker to Treasury Secretary Liu makes clear, it is premature for the United States to support any new lending to the government of Zimbabwe. Preconditions must include meaningful reforms rather than simple technical targets. Before asking for more funding from the international community, Zimbabwe must also account for the billions of dollars in missing diamond revenue. Most of all, the United States should insist that Zimbabwe's government acknowledge 
and take responsibility for gross human rights violations committed by state agents, such as the Matabeliland massacres and, just 15 months ago, the abduction and probable murder of human rights activist Atide Zamara. Until the government of Zimbabwe has met the Zadera conditions, it is not yet time for the U.S. to abandon its targeted sanctions. More broadly across Africa, sanctions will continue to be both a practical and symbolic tool for U.S. policymakers, provided they are carefully targeted, deployed among other policy tools, and not expected to serve as a substitute for other actions. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Books-Rubin. Chairman Flake, Ranking Member Markey, Senator Coons, I'm grateful for the opportunity to testify on this critical yet often misunderstood element of U.S. foreign policy. And my statement, I think, will build on many of the points my uh, colleagues on the panel have made. When once asked his opinion of Western civilization, Mahatma Gandhi reportedly responded, I think it would be a good idea. Men, women, and children across sub-Saharan Africa pay a price every day for the unchecked violence and resource theft committed by leaders who do not believe they will face real consequences for their actions. Sanctions have become the non-military tool of choice of the U.S. government to try to deliver just those consequences across the globe. But based on my experience as a Treasury attorney advising the Office of Foreign Assets Control, a State Department officer focused on natural resources and conflict, a compliance advisor in the private sector and now at enough, I see that sanctions in Sub-Saharan Africa have generally failed to achieve desired impacts. As of today, at least with respect to addressing conflicts and violent kleptocracy across the continent, the problem with sanctions and financial pressure is not that they are ineffective per se, but that they are not utilized as effectively as possible in supporting U.S. efforts to promote peace and human rights. We are experiencing the cost of this in real time as our influence wanes in countries like South Sudan and the DRC, where conflicts now impact the region and the globe as a result of migration. This despite spending billions of taxpayer dollars in recent years to support humanitarian and peacekeeping efforts. Our failure to use financial pressures properly to develop meaningful leverage that imposes real costs helps in part to explain this waning influence. So when asked my view of U.S. sanctions policy in Sub-Saharan Africa in 2016, I would respectfully invoke Gandhi and say that it would be a good idea. Sanctions can and do have beneficial impact when they are carefully designed and strongly enforced. Treasury Secretary Liu recently outlined the key elements of an effective modern sanctions approach, including the need for clear policy goals, investigators delivering financial intelligence analysis, meaningful enforcement and proactive sanctions relief. As detailed in my testimony, however, almost none of these elements is in place to support sub-Saharan African sanctions. Not because it's impossible, but because we do not devote the necessary attention or resources as we do not view these countries through the serious economic lens they deserve. At the Enough Project, we analyze five countries, Sudan, South Sudan, the DRC, the Central African Republic and Somalia, each of which is subject to, the US, to U.S. sanctions in some form, through the lens of what we call violent kleptocracy, in which those in power and their networks of facilitators and enablers hijack the state to engage in grand corruption and foment violence. As the Panama Papers and the work of our investigative initiative called The Century show, these violent kleptocracies depend on the international financial system, particularly the U.S. dollar, 
as they engage in many of the same types of transactions that narco-traffickers, terrorist networks, WMD proliferators, and corrupt regimes in other parts of the world use, and against which we have deployed the full array of financial pressures. Because violent kleptocracies in Africa all revolve around money, especially the dollar, we have the power to disrupt them. I set out in my testimony a six-part framework to ensure we use sanctions effectively, to echo the sentiments of some of, the, uh, of my colleagues on the panel. That framework is one, identify clear policy goals. Two, develop better financial intelligence. Three, employ modern sanctions tools beyond targeted listings. Four, build on the actions at key junctures. Five, prioritize enforcement. And six, keep sanctions temporary and mitigate negative impacts. In most cases, thorough analysis of African sanctions show that they do not rate well against this framework yet. But we can take steps now to improve this and develop a more effective and modernized approach. Some of the examples detailed in my testimony include designation criteria designed to deliver financial impact on high-level targets, enforcement actions at key moments. In South Sudan, for example, two sanctioned commanders have maintained US dollar bank accounts in Kenya and traveled openly in the region for months after they were sanctioned. Enforcement action against this in recent months could have been quite effective. Employ sectoral and even secondary sanctions as needed when based on clear intelligence to act on key economic vulnerability. Push the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN, to look beyond drugs and terrorism when acting against money laundering on the continent something it has never done in sub-Saharan Africa. Our research shows that both Congo and South Sudan represent real opportunities for FinCEN to act against the laundering of proceeds of corruption and natural resource trafficking. Issue strong messages against de-risking and explain clearly how sanctions work and how they can evolve and be nimble over time. Finally, we believe Congress can play a strong role in helping to move this effort forward by passing the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act, by passing Senate Resolution 479, introduced by Senators Markey, Durbin, and Murphy, which call for targeted sanctions on President Kabila's inner circle if the government does not organize free and fair elections and adhere to its constitution. Appropriators should allocate to Treasury and other agencies a greater share of intelligence and investigative resources that can be dedicated to Sub-Saharan Africa, mirroring language released just today in the House Financial Services and General Government Draft Committee report. Chairman Flake, Ranking Member Markey, we are fully aware of the panoply of U.S. security concerns and interests, and we are sanguine about where sub-Saharan Africa tends to rank. But we are aware that sanctions represent a critical component in our foreign policy toolbox and believe they have not been used to their full potential in sub-Saharan Africa. That approach needs to change, and soon, if we are to use these tools most effectively. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you all for your testimony. Uh, I'll start with five minutes of questioning, or seven minutes, and we'll go from there. Uh, Ambassador Lyman, uh, you mentioned uh, when we met before that, and in your testimony, that sometimes the threat of sanctions is more effective even than the sanctions themselves. Uh, how is that? Can you talk about that a bit? Uh, for two reasons. Once you employ sanctions, um, First of all, if you're targeted sanctions on individuals, it's very hard to lift them anyway. If you're targeting someone for their human rights violations and then the government does the right thing, are you really going to lift the sanctions on that individual? So how you, you link 
targeted sanctions to political objectives is important to think through. Second, once you've put sanctions on, people start to figure out how to evade them. And the longer they stay on, the longer they do that. So on the other hand, in looking at the resolution that Senator Markey has introduced, if you are saying that the U.S. is prepared to look at sanctions across a, a rather broad stream of people who are significant politically as well as individually in their own actions, you're posing a significant threat to the way that regime operates. But if we implement them without correlating support from the African Union, from the Europeans, et cetera, they will not necessarily have the same impact. Right now, I think the threat is very important. When to actually do that seems to me depends a lot on what other pressures are coming to bear and how the regime is reacting. Thank you. Dr. Moss, uh, with regard to Zimbabwe, uh, what, what is the end game, uh, the sanctions that we have right now? What is uh, the desired end game and the likely end game? Well, I think it still remains the conditions contained in the, in, the, in the Zadera legislation, which is to get Zimbabwe back on a democratic path and one of, uh, of robust and equitable economic growth and the rule of law. Now, those are pretty broad, uh, pretty broad goals. Um, but now, the, because our sanctions have been imposed, um, that's part of the new political equilibrium. If we all of a sudden say, well, it's been 16 years and Mugabe's still in power, let's lift them, we're now actually injecting that change into the political uh, system there. That will be interpreted as our, an abandonment of U.S. support for democratic forces there. It will, it will be abandoning some of our leverage that we may have in a post-Mugabe transition where we can, we can hold out the carrots of good actors. When, when, when a 92-year-old leader um, is, uh, is, has a fragile hold on power, um, people start looking for what actors like the United States are going to do when he passes. And ha having the ability to use our sanctions uh, to encourage positive behavior in that period is something we shouldn't, we shouldn't give up so quickly. Along those lines, uh, how important is it that the opposition and those likely to assume power after Robert Mugabe leaves, how important is it that they see uh, a consistent application of sanctions or what might, might uh, come on them uh, if they don't uh, straighten up and fly right after yeah. they take control? Well, I think we're at a moment where nobody really knows what, um, what a post-Mugabe Zimbabwe will look like. There are lots of, of possibilities there. Anyone who tells you they're sure what it will look like, I think is, uh, I, I, I wouldn't uh, give that, that view too much credence. Um, but the point is that we want to try to maximize our leverage to try to encourage uh, a positive outcome there. That could mean uh, offering carrots to members of the current regime that want to have a better future. Um, we have lifted sanctions occasionally on actors um, that had them before when they have changed their behavior. And I think continuing to make those signals uh, uh, out there are, is very important uh, for the United States, um, especially because there's, there's such a high degree of uncertainty of, uh, of where the international community stands uh, on Zimbabwe. Thanks. Ms. Eckert, you mentioned uh, regional organizations and the importance there. Let's talk about uh, the African Union for a minute. Where, 
what examples do we have of effective uh, sanctions imposed by the African Union? Well, there, there are differences in terms of objectives. The objectives of the AU, SADC, and ECOWAS are all to restore um, democratically um, elected governments. So it is not focused on human rights. This is according to the, um, the constitutional basis of these organizations. But they have been important because what they do is they are focused on the leaders, the individuals. So they actually apply the sanctions and when withhold them being able to attend regional meetings, et cetera. So it's, um, it's different in terms of how it's applied. But we have a number of cases in which AU sanctions preceded UN sanctions. So the AU or ECOWAS was trying to address the situation on the ground and went to the UN to actually buttress the kind of message that was being sent and the, the reason for those sanctions. So I think um, in particular the AU has, has taken a much greater role in recent years of trying to reach out its Peace and Security Committee. They have come to the Security Council on occasion and asked for assistance in how you actually write resolutions and how you implement and enforce, et cetera. Uh, and there's not much there, frankly. Um, and I think that this is a tremendously lost opportunity because we can work with those countries um, through the AU to actually put in place more effective means for implementing not just AU sanctions, but UN Security Council sanctions above all. And the important thing to remember, why do we care about UN sanctions? It's because for most countries, it's the only legal basis for those countries. It's a Chapter 7 mandatory implementation. So it's the only legal basis for so many countries to do something on implementing these sanction measures, something which is in our U.S. interest. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Brooks Rubin, what, uh, uh, what do we need to be concerned about with regard to impl implementation of sanctions uh, against the DRC right now? Uh, have a situation, elections uh, been called for, the Constitution requires them by the end of the year. In terms of the timing uh, of, of uh, uh, the threat of sanctions and then actual implementation, what concerns should we have in terms of lining up uh, support from the international community, uh, the EU, and others. What should we be concerned about? I think we should be concerned first and foremost with delivering a clear message. Uh, the country of Congo has never seen a peaceful transfer of power, uh, and we are seeing a move by the government to do everything in its power to avoid holding that election. I think we know that President Kabila, the enablers, the facilitators around him have extremely deep invested interests. They're, as Todd referenced, their children are studying abroad. Their networks are wide, and we need to deliver a clear message now that that network uh, can, can and will be disrupted unless there is a clear move to a transition, uh, constitutional transition of power. Uh, the longer it goes and the less that the regime feels like it will face real costs, uh, the more likely we are to see violence and repression begin. We need to move now to make that message clear. And certainly with, there are, um, there may be differences within the international community, but this is a moment for us to lead and make clear what needs to be done and that our role in this because of the US dollar and the, its role in the financial, international financial system we have a strong impact to make, and by leading and by demonstrating that this is what the regime needs to do, we can bring other partners on board. And if we wait too long, things will descend very quickly. Thank you. Senator Markey. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, Mr. Uh, Brooks Rubin, uh, you, you referenced the resolution which I have uh, introduced calling for targeted sanctions on the DRC. And that resolution calls for it, that is, the sanctions to be done in coordination with the African Union and with uh, regional and international partners and with the United Nations specifically in the resolution. Um, what impact do you think such sanctions would have on President Kabila's decision making? And how do you think um, those types of sanctions would be received by the uh, people in Congo? Congo already has indigenous democratic movements. Huh? So it's not that we're trying to create those institutions. They're already there. So what do you think the reaction would be? Senator, I, th I believe the reaction would be uh, if they are implemented and enforced and we can demonstrate real meaning and real disruption of power, I think the, the reaction on the ground would be tremendously positive. Uh, the NGOs, the communities that we engage with as enough and that our partners in other organizations engage with demonstrate that the Congolese people want a different path than, um, than what they've experienced over the last more than 100 years. And in the opening remarks you gave uh, referencing President Obama's call on strong institutions, the Congolese people want those strong institutions. They want to see a peaceful and clear transition of power. Uh, they want to see that we can and the international community can deliver that strong message. Um, we are already seeing arrests and detentions and violence against protesters, and I think we have all seen, sadly, too often what that results in. It, we need to be able to deliver that message and, and to get to those movements that you reference now to demonstrate that we can do something about this that has an impact, that is more than just a message or more than is just good intention. And I, by using some of the broader tools of financial pressure and targeted sanctions at high-level targets, uh, we can do that. Mr. Moss, what do you think the reaction would be in Congo if there was broad international sanctions that were imposed upon the Congo government? How do you think President Kabila's decision-making would be affected? Yeah, so I, I have no idea in the case of the Congo um, what the effects of that would be. I, I find it plausible um, that it would have the effects um, that Brad mentioned. If I was a U.S. Senator um, trying to contemplate this, I would want to know uh, w two things. One, what are the specific pressure points that these sanctions are intended to, to hit? If there are high-level targets, do we know where their accounts are? Do we know where their businesses are? If the intelligence community tells us that, that they're not going to be affected by uh, by targeted sanctions, then we wouldn't expect to see um, some, of those, uh, some of those effects. And second, I'd want to see from the administration how targeted sanctions uh, fit within a broader strategy um, and how those pressure points uh, are going to get us uh, it, some of the steps along the way of where U.S. policy is trying to go. If the sanctions aren't embedded in a broader strategy um, that seems credible, um, then we're doing something that just makes us feel good, um, which can have important signaling effects, um, but un are unlikely to, to really move the needle uh, if we don't see those, uh, that context. Yeah, Ms. Eckert, what, what do you think would happen if we 
on an international basis imposed sanctions led by the United States? I, I'm not an Africa expert, so I will defer to, to my colleagues on, on, on reading this, but um, I think that if the United States was to take the leadership and continue to have the very intensive discussions with the Europeans, getting them on board, um, I think that we have a very potent tool that we can use. I don't know, I mean, given what we've seen in the past and the previous elections in 2011 and, and the violence, um, I understand well the State Department's concern about the unintended consequence of these measures. And that's why I think um, in working on sanctions legislation when I was here on the House, on the Hill, on the House side, one of the most effective things is not to mandate the sanction, but to, to, in, to underscore the importance and try to enhance the tool and put that in the hands of the policymakers. I think that um, a, a concerted effort and leadership by the U.S and uh, combined with the fact that we could actually get to some of the assets in particular, and the travel, I think, would send a very powerful message. I don't know exactly how Kabila would respond, um, and I think that's the major fear of everyone in the policy circles, is we could be creating a worse problem. Yeah, and again, my fear is not just how he responds, but by every other nation subsequently, as their constitutions require them to leave. And so we have to start this someplace. That's right. We and have to begin this effort. We just can't allow it to continue domino after domino to fall, uh, even as these countries become more wealthy, they regress in terms of their democratic institutions. So th that wealth is something, that influence which they have is something that we can target. Uh, Mr. Lyman, you, you uh, you said it clearly has to be more than bilateral, which I agree uh, with you on. And I would love to get your perspective on how to define the effectiveness of a sanctions regime. Would you limit it to the ability to influence a government or a group towards a specific result? Or is there also a value in communicating to a government or its people that we, the United States, will not be seen as helping a regime to violate uh, the democratic or human rights of its people or to break the peace of their society. Uh, thank you, Senator. This is my personal views, but I think, first of all, you have to ask, why would President Kabila want to stay on? Is it just for financial gain? Is it because he's worried about retribution after he leaves? Is it something else? And if you don't know that, you're not quite sure what kind of pressures are going to be significant. Second, we have a time factor here. His term is up in December. <clears throat> it's not clear to me, given the complexity of the DRC, that we could really impose and have far-reaching effect on the government between now and December. By the time you pass them, try to implement them, and the complexities of commodity exchanges with neighboring countries, especially if they're not cooperative. So the question is, what are we trying to do? And it seems to me the first thing we're trying to signal, we're trying to signal, it seems to me, two things. One, continuation in office is a destabilizing act and will lead to very dangerous instability in the DRC. Second, we're signaling that maintaining yourself in power by repressive techniques is unacceptable. So those are the two messages. And then the question is, can we rally enough support around that with the threat of sanctions or the readiness to impose them that the neighboring countries who would have to 
in, uh, participate in enforcing them and others will put that kind of pressure and deal with whatever it is that's motivating President Kabila to stay. If this fails, if come December and he stays in power and things start to get worse, then the objectives are a little bit different. Then they become putting pressure on the regime so that it can't function very well, and then hopefully it'll step down. So I think we have to think about the timing, when those things take effect, and how they will impact on the strategy and politics of the neighboring countries in the Africa Union. As I said earlier, I'm troubled that the Africa Union isn't forceful and organized in this regard. And there's another point that, that Sue Eckert raised, which is very important if you want to get to UN sanctions. The, the, the rule of thumb that we have found is that when the Africans are unified on wanting UN sanctions, we can usually get them through. China and Russia won't say no if the Africans say this is what we want. But when the Africans are divided, the Chinese and the Russians say no. So if you want to move this to UN sanctions for the reasons that Sue mentioned, then you've really got to get the Africans un united behind you. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Dr. Moss, let's talk for a minute about the relationship between Congress and the administration and where the impetus for sanctions comes from. Uh, when uh, I was in Zimbabwe uh, a couple of months ago, we met with a foreign minister, and he had the letter in his hand that uh, Chairman Corker had written with regard to sanctions. Uh, he was obviously paying attention, uh, as was the government there, the, the letter saying don't, uh, you know, provide sanctions relief. What uh, is, is that the case across the board? How many governments uh, that we're talking about uh, pay attention to that? Where is it useful for Congress to be pushing uh, harder than the administration or give the administration the flexibility to move? Can you talk about the relationship a little between Congress and the administration? Sure. Look, I think it's, it's very useful for, for Congress to push the administration, which maybe for other reasons is is uh, less motivated to take action. Um, um, and that, that could be, you know, um, there, there are lots of examples of that. However, I do think that the, the ideal relationship is where Congress is giving a sense of the legislature to the administration, giving them authorities uh, to take certain actions, but not overly prescribing them, because it tends to be very blunt. It's hard to, to be creative and selective. Um, and, uh, and it, it can actually wind up undermining U.S. influence by constraining policymaker action. Now, if you don't see policymakers being creative and aggressive and pursuing what you see as U.S. interest, then you might need to come over the top on that. I can, I can understand that frustration. Um, in the specific case that we're talking about in Zimbabwe, the Zadera legislation calls for the administration to consider targeting top um, uh, top agitators for travel and financial sanctions. Um, it also, it's a separate piece that calls for, it's, it's unrelated to bilateral sanctions that it's calling for the U.S. to vote against debt relief or new lending at the international financial institutions. So it's actually not the case, although the Zimbabwean government do, doesn't quite understand this, that they believe they can't get loans from the World Bank because of U.S. sanctions. That's not true. The reason they can't get loans from the World Bank is because they haven't been paying their World Bank loans and they've accumulated over a billion dollars in arrears and the World Bank won't lend to you if you owe back payments of uh, large back payments. So um, the question now for the U.S. is 
um, as Zimbabwe is trying to figure out some accounting gimmicks to clear its arrears, would we support uh, would we support new lending if they're able to clear that hurdle? And that's that's where I believe uh, Chairman Corker's letter uh, was very clear and very constructive. Thank you, Ambassador Lyman. Uh, kind of same question. You, you've been ambassador to two uh, very important African countries. Um, you know, with a history of uh, sanctions with regard to South Africa, the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act, Congress overrode a presidential veto in that regard. Talk about the relationship between Congress. Can con I know that uh, sometimes the State Department will uh, obviously want enabling or authorizing legislation or simply cover uh, so they can point to Congress uh, uh, with these countries. When is that useful? How can Congress play a constructive role and not undermine what the administration would like to do, given what uh, all of you have talked about, about sanctions being used as a tool as part of a broader strategy? Uh, first of all, and let me draw on my experience working on Sudan and during the negotiations of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, the tremendous value of both the public's and the Congress's focus on this issue gave us much more uh, authority and leverage to play a role in those negotiations than it would have been otherwise. Uh, because it was clear that this was a U.S. high priority and it was of concern not just to someone in the administration or one element here, but a broad concern of the United States. What's troubling, and I, I've thought of this for a long time, how little attention the United States relatively has been given to the DRC which civil wars there have taken over five million deaths, and it's such an important country. So the fact that the Congress, you and Senator Markey and others, are raising the importance of this and making it a priority for the United States, I think is very helpful. And if I were in the administration, I would think it's very helpful. Now, I do think, as, as Todd uh, spoke, you want to be, encouraging the administration, you want to supporting what they're trying to do if they're trying to do this, and you want to have a discussion with them as to how what you're doing here can reinforce what they're doing there and then see how the two can reinforce each other. Uh, and I think in those cases, it's very important. Clearly, the congressional enactment of sanctions on South Africa came at a very critical time at the end of the Cold War when we were looking at South Africa much more in terms of the anti-apartheid movement and it sent a very strong signal and was part of a larger process. Here, I think you're signaling to the administration that Congress cares about this issue, that as Senator Markey said, some of the th actions going on there are unacceptable. I think that bolsters the role of the administration with its allies and in the field. All right, thank you. Ms. Eckert, do you have any thoughts on this? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, uh, I confess to some um, tugging because having been on both sides, but being both on the staff right. side and working on sanctions legislation on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and then being in the position of implementing in the um, Clinton administration. That's why I'm asking you. It is, uh, <laughs> the, you know, where you stand depends on where right. you sit or vice versa. But but I think that what's most important is for it, them not to be opposed. In other words, to have outright um, opposition, to have the sanctions with so little flexibility that the executive branch 
branch feels that its, its hands are too bound, that it can't conduct adequate foreign policy, puts everyone in the bad position of sending a mixed signal. And I think that is what we've seen in the past on a number of cases in which it just undermines the sanctions. We send a mixed message. We're not effective in achieving the goals. Um, and frankly, people have used that in terms of rally around the flag effect, and, and it undermines the credibility and effectiveness of, of the sanctions. I think that the reinforcing nature um, can be quite important. And I think, frankly, what you're doing here today, there's so few hearings and so little focus on African sanctions. Um, and, and how to make those more effective. So I think that this is a tremendous way of trying to get the executive branch to focus, to have a broader understanding in the public of why these are important and how and why they can be effective. Thank you. Mr. Brooks Rubin, you have any thoughts? I do, thank you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, having been in the executive branch, there's something of a, of a sort of natural reaction, but I'm certainly learning a lot from being on the other side. And I think there are a few very key things that, uh, that Congress can do. Uh, as I mentioned, passing Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act is, is key. Uh, I mentioned in my statement uh, appropriations to Treasury and other agencies. A lot of what we've talked about is uh, developing the right intelligence and having the right resources devoted to this. Uh, at the moment, they're not, uh, partially because the agencies now don't see that it, they don't feel that kind of public and congressional uh, importance that Ambassador Lyman referenced. That needs to come. We're certainly trying to do as much as, as we can, but Congress can deliver an important message. There are a lot of very good working level staff who have a lot of very good ideas about what can be done on these programs. They need senior leadership to devote the resources to them, and so maybe that's some additional appropriations, but then you can also hold them to account. Um, when Sanctions are renewed, and a part of the legislation that underlies sanctions requires Treasury and other agencies to report to Congress on how they're implementing and what they're doing. Hold those to account. There's often a, you know, a sense that those, there's a lot of very good information in there and a lot of very good um, material that Congress could use to really push Treasury. We saw in the Iran context that uh, a lot of the very creative tools that are now in place and that really played a role in moving that process forward uh, came from Congress and really pushed the administration to think more creatively. What they've done in the Russia and Ukraine context, again, a lot of very good ideas and being pressed to be creative and get out of the rut. And I think the rut that we're in with respect to Sub-Saharan African sanctions uh, can be moved, that needle can be moved quite a bit by clear direction from Congress. Thank you. Senator Markey. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, Mr. Brooks-Rubin, you suggest in your testimony that one of the key shortcomings in our current approach to sanctions in sub-Saharan Africa is the unwillingness to use them at critical moments to build leverage. So the elections in uh, Congo are approaching very rapidly. So this is a key juncture in the whole history of uh, popular democracy in Africa. Congo is a big, big country. It sends signals to an entire region. So could you give us your thoughts on the appropriate timing for sanctions in DRC? Thank you, Senator. Uh, yes, I think it's uh, one of the 
I think contrast between sanctions in sub-Saharan Africa and sanctions in other contexts is often the, the willingness to back off at key moments and sort of wait for the next moment, the next process, which, which then too often doesn't come. Uh, we saw this just unfold in South Sudan where months and months of delay of implementation of the peace agreement and more violence and more looting by corrupt officials always waiting another moment, uh, another you're saying in sub few days. You're, you're yeah. saying in sub-Saharan Africa, in Sudan, we didn't so, act at, and, the, right. and, at the appropriate time. When exactly. the crisis was about to arrive, was building, we stood on the sidelines, and that That's was a right. mistake. So if you extrapolate that over now into Congo, with their elections on the way, knowing the ramifications in Kenya and other countries, if uh, an example is set, which will be hard then to say is something that the next country shouldn't do. Yeah. Agreed. I, I, I think now is the time to deliver that message. Uh, it, it, we can't act soon enough. We have been, uh, I was <clears throat> helped to coordinate the executive order on uh, Congo sanctions in 2006, and we did a lot of scurrying around for the right message then and the right things to do, and we waited, and then I was, at state in 2011, and again, we waited and we had you know, kind of a, a muddled response to that election. Here we are again. It's, it's the time is now to act on this because it's not just this election. We've, we've seen this movie before, sadly, and, and the time is now to act. And you know, at, at every key moment in the Iran negotiation process, we issued, we did some kind of enforcement or designation process to deliver the message of accountability. In order for this process to be serious, we're going to take a step and show you that we uh, will hold you to account if you don't move forward. And I think we need to do the same with Congo. Okay, thank you. Uh, back to you, uh, Ambassador Lyman, if we could. And we thank each of you for being here. You each have distinguished um, careers. And I know Sue Eckert from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, where she was an excellent, excellent um, staffer. Um, the role of Congress, Mr. Lyman. The executive branch could take action if they wanted to, but what role do you think Congress can play in helping to reinforce that point uh, with any country that we are trying to send a strong signal that the United States wants a change in course of action? Well, <clears throat> Senator, as I, as I indicated earlier, I think it signals that they, these are issues that, imp that are of relevance to the American public, which you represent. And therefore, it says something more than just the administration. The administration obviously represents people, but it sends a very strong signal. I think it strengthens the hand of American diplomacy. Uh, yes, there are questions of you know how much leeway you give and leverage you give each say you know the administration operating. But I think the role of Congress, as others here have said, in calling attention to the issue, saying it's important to the Congress, the Congress is prepared to consider some very tough legislation. Uh, I think this is very important. I do think that we want to be, and I would hope Congress is, very clear on what it is that we're looking for here and what it is that Congress wants to see. And because one of the problems of sanctions is when do you lift them and under what circumstances do you lift them? It's often harder to lift them than to put them on. So the clearer it is as to what we're aiming for and what any sanctions would be aimed at would be very helpful. But on the whole, I think 
what you're doing is strengthening not only public attention to this, but in my view, strengthening the hands, Tom Perriello and others in the administration, who I think are working along the same lines for the same objectives. And I agree with you. And you know, from this committee's perspective, or back when I was in the House, I was always a very strong supporter of sanctions on Iran, just to send the signal that this was just not some diplomat coming from the State Department, but the Congress itself was saying and change behavior. But many administrations objected to passing those sanctions, but we know ultimately that's what led to the final agreement that diplomats could reach. So could you each kind of try to deal with this question? Uh, because the, the resolution that I've introduced has no actual specific prescription for what the sanctions regime should look like. What, in your opinions, would be the best way to craft sanctions, knowing that it should be international uh, uh, in nature, but what should it look like, in your opinions, if you want to start signaling to, um, to the uh, Congo government as soon as possible that uh, we're serious? Mr. Lyman or Ms. Eckert? Let's start with you, Ms. Eckert. Um, thank you, um, Senator Markey. I think that um, there are things to do beyond legislation. And I think that hearings are very important and having the legislation out there and the threat of sanctions is extremely important. But some of the most um, uncomfortable um, positions I was in in the executive branch is when I was called up for briefings that were not public. Um, and it got into very detailed, what are the plans? How are we going to do this? And it was an engagement, I think, that was constructive for the purpose uh, of how we were going to move forward. So non-public um, oversight. Um, I think is I extremely important. Another is the use of sanctions in terms of resources. Um, I, I am very fond and, and supportive of my colleagues at the Treasury Department, but the State Department has labored for years with increasing sanctions and no additional resources, and they're drowning because we have so many sanctions regimes, the activity level has increased significantly. They don't have the resources to do some of this. So I think you send a strong signal with regard to your seriousness of, of, of sanctions by increasing staff, by increasing uh, attention, even high level engagement. We don't have, we have a sanctions coordinator at state which is relatively new in this administration, but is focusing almost exclusively on Russia or um, you know, on Iran previously. So it's very difficult because these sanctions get left behind. All the African sanctions don't have a, a strong advocate. We don't even have someone in the, in the National Security Council whose job is to, to deal with sanctions. So you have more There consistent. is no one on the National Security Council whose job it is to deal with sanctions? Not specifically sanctions. Mm -hmm. They deal with it through the bureaus, the regional bureaus. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, if you had some higher level focus, both within agencies and also within the, the NSC mechanism, it brings a seriousness to uh, better coordination. The final thing I would just say is that talking about these, these issues and educating the American public I think is incredibly important because most don't understand how important it is, what's happening there. So um, clarity of purpose, as the ambassador said, and not moving the goalpost, be clear about what it is we're trying to achieve. All of these things help. Um, as to timing, I think that that's, you know, we have to get the AU and the, uh, the countries and the neighbors on board. And I think that may take some time, but that's critically important. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Books-Rubin. 
Thank you, Senator. Uh, yeah, to be you know specific on what some of those sanctions measures could be, again, I think we're talking about um, using the, whatever financial intelligence we have to go at high level, both targets within the government and their enablers and their facilitators. And, and as I said, too often there isn't that intelligence inside the government. So, you know, the research that we're doing as the century that other NGOs are doing should be used to, to get at those uh, targets. And again, not in the, in the narcotic sanctions, you rarely see a narcotic, a narcotic sanctions designation with one entity. They designate a network uh, or, and they find the key nodes of networks. And I think we need to take the same approach with respect to Congo, identifying the key nodes in the networks that President Kabila and those in his regime are using that then en enable subsequent action. I think the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network at FinCEN is, uh, it's high time that they were asked to take specific action. It can start with, a, they have a lot of authority to request information that can prompt due diligence and uh, information gathering that law enforcement can use. Let's ask them to issue an advisory or a request, a private request to other governments uh, and financial institutions. They have access to thousands of institutions to get information on accounts related to the regime that we can then act upon and demonstrate that we can seize assets, freeze assets. Uh, that's what will send a message locally. Okay, and, I think I, and I'm gonna run out oh, of time. Sure. I just apologize to you. Mr. Uh, Moss, do you have a quick set of suggestions? Yeah, I would just make a, a the point that if you're, if Congress is trying to send a signal to the Congolese and trying to motivate the executive branch, the 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 legislation should be as broad and clear as possible. I think you only need to get into specificity if you if that's necessary for policymakers if they need those tools to do what what they're what what they're trying to do already. If that and that's Ambassador Lyman's point. If it's not supportive of what the administration is trying to do, that, that needs to get worked out. You're not gonna be able to over-legislate something the State Department doesn't wanna do. Although I would say that we did over-legislate on sanctions on Iran, and ultimately coordination caught up. So I would say that that was the sequence there, but I would hope here that it would all be done uh, together in conjunction, and I think there is a common goal here to make sure that Kabila and the Congo uh, get that message, and uh, Mr. Lyman, can I just ask you to quickly respond? The chairman has been very indulgent with me. Uh, on this question, uh, the, the, uh, I, I do think that, uh, you know, sometimes it's a good cop, bad cop thing, like you mentioned on the Iran thing, it works. Uh, but here, if, you, if the administration is really working toward the same objective and willing to put pressure on, I think it probably you want to work in, in close support. But uh, I think, again, the timing is important. We only have a few months. So the more coordinated effort that can be put together in the next few months, uh, it seems to me, is critical. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Thank you to all of you. This has been incredibly informative. Uh, this subject has been one that I've followed for a long time and, and uh, had some experience with. I spent a year in Africa, in Namibia, 1989-90. Uh, uh, it was a time that there was, was a transition going on in South Africa. Sanctions were lifted. The Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act was being lifted in South Africa. And after Namibia's independence, 
those sanctions were also because of Namibia's governance by South Africa. Namibia was included, but the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act did not mention Namibia specifically by name, as well it should have been. Several, uh, many state and local governments around the country actually mentioned Namibia by name, and those sanctions remained on the books uh, for years afterwards, and it became troublesome. Uh, because uh, sometimes lower-level bureaucrats in a city office or state office, uh, when it was uh, you know, the sale of, of some good from Namibia, they might say, no, this contract can't be had because sanctions are still applied. And so uh, these are important, and we've often used sanctions in the past, particularly in Africa, with smaller countries like Namibia, kind of in a drive-by fashion, and have forgotten about them afterwards. Uh, gratefully not the Congress in that case, uh, but this is very helpful as we move forward, particularly uh, given the timely nature of uh, this discussion with regard to the DRC. Uh, so we, uh, we appreciate uh, the testimony you've given here today, and you had, was that? Something? Mr. Chairman, I just wanted to correct the record because I've just heard um, that in fact there may be a person at the NSC who's very much a leader on sanction, who's come down from US-UN. <laughs> um, and if that's the case, I think that that's very good news. But uh, before that point, there was no one who was addressing sanctions specifically. Let the record note. <laughs> and, and thank you all. The hearing record for the benefit of members and staff will remain open until Friday. If uh, the questions come to you, if you could respond in a timely fashion, it would be appreciated. And with the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.